you'll keep my name out of this, right? I thought you'd hit the ceiling of your career. Well, I still need a job. That's the way it works, yes. No one will know your name, not even my editor. Okay, good. I think I have a real, a real player in the trunk of my car. You have a player in your car? Why didn't you mention that? What? Because in a perfect world, I would have the tape and be listening to it alone. But it's your tape. It's my tape. Yes, it's your tape. And maybe I'm not making this clear, but I'm looking out for you. Okay, and maybe you're not listening to me, but I don't need you looking out for me. I give you this tape, you splash it all over the cover of the Times, it gets traced back to me in a heartbeat. You win the Pulitzer and I get indicted. <laughs> no, no, we're not doing that. We're gonna listen to the tape together, you're gonna take your little notes, and I'm returning the tape at work on Monday morning. That's the deal. Okay, okay. I think there's a motel nearby. I, I saw it on the way up here, the Silver Sands. You can check in there. We'll say that we're a married couple, so we don't draw attention. Or dating. No, married. Married's better. One last name. What? What? What is the Silver Sands? It's a motel. I saw it on the way up here. Why can't we just listen to it in your car? I need an outlet. And we want someplace okay, private. Fine. Why can't we just be there together and then separately? Have you seen the size of this town? It's gonna Nobody knows what we look like. Okay, we have to play the long game here. No one can ever know we're here. Not tomorrow. Not 30 years from now. So we go there, we listen to it, we leave. Do you expect me to check into a motel with a man that I just met? Do you have a better idea? Because I don't. You seem really nervous. I'm not nervous. I'm not. I'm excited. I've been waiting for this opportunity for a long time. I'm nervous about anything. It's that you're lying to me. <sighs> you can take your car. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. Yeah, it's a little late for that, I'd say. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Maybe you have something better to do, like transcribing. It's Saturday. You got a little something. Right there. What's up, everybody? This is Fred Rachani. I have right here via Zoom a very special guest. He is a filmmaker, an author, the founder of an awesome film festival, and the director of the new film that should be in theater soon, 18 and a half, taking place in the Nixon era. We're talking to director Dan Mervish. Dan, thank you so much for the time. How's everything hey, going? It's going great. Thanks for having me on, Fred. Hey, appreciate it. Now, this film is quite interesting. It is a historical dark comedy, as I believe it's described in the press release. It is pretty funny. It is historical. It is quite dark. We won't give uh, too much away. Of course, the stars at the great Will Fitzgerald as seen in Reacher on Amazon Prime. Can you tell us a little bit about how this whole idea came about and kind of the crazy time you had filming this? Because if <laughs> I understand this correctly, you were almost done filming before this little thing called the pandemic. Yeah. So we, it, it kind of started a few years ago. The um, the last film I did called Bernard and Huey had had just wrapped the day of the uh, November 2016 election. And I went out to Shelter Island on the tip of Long Island uh, to see Jules Pfeiffer, who was the writer, the screenwriter of Bernard and Huey. And inevitably, we started talking about Nixon and and uh, Watergate and because that's Pfeiffer had had essentially won a Pulitzer Prize for um, for his cartoons about Nixon Watergate in, in the early 70s and um, and then right after seeing him I went across a ferry to Shelter Island uh, to uh, Greenport um, across the Peconic Bay and uh, stayed with my friend uh, Terry Keefe who owns this um, amazing motel called the Silver Sands Motel, which his grandparents had built in the 50s and 60s. And Terry had really kind of preserved it 
as a vintage uh, motel and it's a motel in the summer, but then he had also uh, rented it out for a lot of fashion shoots. And he said, well, hey, um, you know, if you ever come up with an idea that set in, you know, the mid seventies, um, you know, we're closed in the winter and everyone can stay here. And he was with me with Pfeiffer. So we sort of had Watergate on the brain and this amazing location. And then I teamed up with a writing partner, uh, Daniel Moya, who then became a producer on the film. He had an aunt and uncle who owned a vintage, uh, diner just down the street from the you know silver sand so we're like well that's two locations we got to make a film now you know that's pretty cool so those two central locations in the film it just happened to, to come about and everything that, that that's crazy so when you found out about those two locations that's when the ball uh, really got rolling or did you always kind of have a concept in mind that maybe you just didn't put pen to paper yet. No, no, it was really the locations because then it was a question, well, how do you shoot a Watergate film, you know, which is do you associate with Watergate hotel or Washington DC and a seaside resort motel on the tip of Long Island. So the first step is to change its location to the Chesapeake Bay instead of the Beconic Bay. And then, um, and then in doing a lot of research, and I'd always been fascinated by Watergate. I'd lived in Washington. I'd worked there for a couple of years as a speechwriter. I knew some people involved with Watergate. Um, so I'd always been fascinated about it, but I hadn't really thought of something. But in doing the research, we found out that there, during the Nixon administration, there really were several different offices that had these voice-activated voice um, microphones and taping systems. And there really are tapes of Nixon listening to his own tapes and, and fumbling around with the buttons. And, and once I realized that, then it was like, oh, okay, now it's plausible that somebody could have a tape of the deleted 18 and a half minute gap. And, and so then it was a matter of getting that character played by Willa Fitzgerald, who's a, um, you know, a, a low level uh, transcriber in the White House. She gets a hold of this thing. She decides to leak it to a reporter and then they meet in uh, in this motel, basically, and and uh, and then they run afoul of hippie swingers and nefarious people out to get them. Yeah, for for, for sure, that, that's wild. <laughs> and, in, and in terms of the the casting process, like, did you have that original cast in mind, or did, did it kind of change over time, especially with COVID? Well, the the one person that was kind of always in mind was Richard Kind because he'd been in my last film, and so I knew he was someone that if the schedule worked out, we could you know, we could work together again. Um, so his character was written a little bit for him, but otherwise um, it was, they were all new to me. Willa was recommended by her agent. And then also by my friend, Lucky McKee, who's a, who had directed her in a film. He said she was great to work with. And so she was the first person we met with, but then kind of thought about some other people and then, and then really came back to her. Um, the begin, you know, we started shooting in March 3rd, I think 2020, what could, possibly go wrong then and, and there were definitely some inklings that this pandemic was going to come to the states and so it was harder to get people then because, and it was certainly harder to get people in new york if they were la based they're like yeah i don't think now's the best time to travel you know so it, it was tough so people dropped out people dropped in um we got john mcgarro who kelly reichardt had recommended from first cow um but, you know, a couple of the actors, we got 36 hours before they showed up. Um, uh, Vondi Curtis Hall and, and Kathy Curtin, they were real last minute, but they were great. They were all and, and all the cast wound up being New York based and uh, and really came through for us. But we got 11 days in and we found out we were the last film shooting in North America. And we're like, what? We don't want to be the last one shooting. So we shut down and um, and took a six month healthy hiatus or pandemic pause. 
and uh, and then came back in September once the Screen Actors Guild and, and Directors Guild had the um, the COVID protocols in in place, and we shot our last four days then. That's that's wild. And in terms of you know, getting some of these cast members within like you know thirty six hours like notice, twenty four hour notice. I mean, were you it, even as an experienced filmmaker like yourself, were you kind of surprised at how well everybody worked together and, and the <laughs> chemistry and everything? Because it's not easy. Yeah. No. Exactly. And normally I like to have like three or four days rehearsal on these films. Um, and we had none. Um, but I think what helped was that, you know, we were all staying at this really authentic vintage place. So we all got kind of into the 70s vibe and groove. And um, and it was great for the actors because, you know, before and after, you know, or especially after we would wrap, they could hang out together and eat dinner and 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 drink product placement wine and eat product placement Omaha steaks, you know, for barbecue. And, um, and, you know, we could talk about the characters and they could rehearse little bits of, of dialogue here and there. But I know something Vondi, uh, Curtis Hall told me was that, you know, he really liked the fact that there was, you know, he, he just hit the ground running because the actors could really respond with surprise, not knowing what the other actors were going to do next. And that was, and, and, and that worked with those scenes, you know, uh, it, it worked with those characters too. So it, it, it fit with the film that these characters would ha- be like very clueless about what the other characters were going to do because they, they were all such strange folks. Um, so in our case, I think it kind of worked. And then we just had this, you know, run up to the pandemic where we were all paranoid and, you know, communally sharing in this global paranoia about what was going to happen next. And I think in, you know, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to repeat it, but it, it, in some ways that kind of helped all of us kind of relate to this, you know, kind of paranoid thriller that we were making. Definitely. And in terms of funding the film, you've done other films in the past, of course, before, but uh, was it different at all with this one, uh, with, with this one or now with social media and everything else? I've seen you've been pretty transparent on, online. Like, how, how was this different for some of your past films when it came to funding? It was about the same, which is to say, I always do crowdfunding on my films. I always have from even before it was called crowdfunding. Uh, in this case, we use Seed and Spark, but I've used Kickstarter before. Um, and then, you know, and then it's about building not so much money, but a community of 300, 400 backers that are all helping you in different ways. And and especially when you go through a major catastrophe like a pandemic, you need that moral support as much as you need the financial support. So um, so that was really, you know, we kind of relied on on, on those folks Uh and and yeah, and it was it wasn't really that different than how I've raised money before. Um, we did have to keep raising money in order to shoot those last four days, so that mm-hmm. was an added burden. I mean, that added you know twenty percent or something to the budget. Um, but you know, we were able to do it because we had shot that first eighty percent of the film. I could cut those scenes together and show them to people and, and get a sense of the, you know that we had something interesting here. You said 20%. Is there a cutoff for you as a filmmaker as to like when you realize like, okay, maybe this is going a little too much over budget or I'm spending a little too much. Like, do you have that point or is it more, do you look at it more from a creative aspect and worry about the money part later? Uh, yeah, both, both, you know, I'm, I'm a director and a producer. So, you know, but I, for me, like, it's it's important to have enough money to get through production, <laughs> you know, because uh, with technology and and also the skill set I have, I know I can always edit the film on my own, 
you know, essentially for free and get pretty far with post-production without spending any extra money if I don't have to, um, or if I can't, if I don't have the money. Um, so, but it's important to pay the actors and the crew and make sure everyone is fed and insured and things like that. So, um, so we had enough to get through that first shoot, but the problem with COVID was then it meant you had to then go back and rehire people and re-rent equipment and get, you know, all these, and then the PCR tests were not cheap and were not fast. And we were kind of a guinea pig for the Screen Actors Guild, trying to find places in New York that could do them with 24 hours notice when everyone else was getting, you know, was, was, was spending a lot more time. So, um, yeah. And then one, yeah. But once you have something to show people, then it, it's easier to raise a little bit more money and a little bit more money and a little bit more. And, and eventually you finish it <laughs> <laughs> from what I understand too. It's going to be uh, coming out in theaters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. After 21 festivals on four continents, we are now coming out theatrically theatrical only for at least oh. the first uh, month or two. And uh, so it's going to be opening May 27th in LA and New York um and then uh june 3rd coast to coast around the country so um yeah and this is this is a rare indie film that's going to have that that much of a theatrical release you know just just like top gun uh maverick so uh you know see that and then come see our film you worked in dc for a while you were a, a speech writer yeah. now you're really known as a filmmaker so how did film come into your life and when did you decide okay i want to be full-time in film well, like most people, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and um, I, uh, you know, always liked film growing up. Uh, there, there weren't a lot of places to see art house films, but there were a few. And then in college, I took a Super 8 class um, and really loved that. And then did some summer classes at UCLA in 60 millimeter. But then I, but the school I went to didn't have a film program. So I majored in history and political science and really focused on late 20th century <laughs> Uh, American politics and had done an internship in DC, went out to DC, worked there as, uh, you know, as a speechwriter. But even as a speechwriter, we did a lot of the speeches. On, sh we shot them on video in the basement of the Capitol. There's a couple of record video recording studios there, which uh, thankfully the protesters didn't know about. And um, and so I would hang out with the guys in the booth there and they're like, oh, dude, you should go to film school, you know, because if you stay in Washington, you know, by the time you hit 30, someone just gives you a three-piece suit and a law degree by osmosis. It just, they just appear. And I was like, I don't know that I want that. I, I kind of like that California thing, you know, film school smells like eucalyptus and opportunity. So, um, so I took a break from Washington and went back out to LA and, and this time got into USC um, film school for my master's program. And instead of just doing a short, like most people, I did a feature film as my thesis and was mentored by Robert Altman, which was pretty amazing. And his grandson is still my producing partner or one of my producing partners. So, um, yeah, I kind of hit the ground running and then we started the slam dance film festival. And I, so I've just been kind of immersed in indie film ever since and written a book called the cheerful subversives guide to independent filmmaking <laughs> and a couple editions of that. So, um, you know, so I'm trying to get back to, to other folks. I do have got a lot of guest lecturing too. So that's great. And how did the slam dance film festival come about? Well, uh, my film, Omaha, the movie, there's my poster for it, uh, didn't get into Sundance. And this was at a time in the mid nineties where if you, um, you know, the, the world of independent film was really going Hollywood, you know, Miramax had just become part of Disney. Fine line had become part of Warner brothers. Fox was launching Fox searchlight and Sundance was like, woohoo, we're going on that Hollywood ride. Come on in <laughs> Harvey. And, um, 
you know, and they kind of forgot about the niche of the first time independent filmmakers working at a low budget with no name actors, you know, and, and, and with no distribution in place. Uh, and we had all been kind of influenced by that first generation, that first 10 years of Sundance um, filmmakers. So I uh, got together with a bunch of other filmmakers and we said, well, let's just show up because distributors at the time were saying, well, we love your film, but if it doesn't get in Sundance, forget it you're we're not going to pick it up you're not going to get into other festivals you're not going to get agents you're not going to get a girlfriend you know nothing none of that was going to happen so um so we really had to show up in park city and so that first year in january 95 we had a dozen features and dozen shorts and you know we've kept doing it every year since even the last two years virtually and and because of that and we kind of stuck to that first time directors and uh, with low budgets and no distribution. I mean, we showed the first films of Bong Joon-ho, Ryan Johnson, uh, Christopher Nolan, the Russo brothers, the late Lynn Shelton, um, you know, the Safdie brothers, the, uh, yeah, I don't know, uh, Sean Baker, every, you know, the list is pretty impressive of who we've now showcased as their first film. And then, you know, and often their first film isn't spoken about again, but, but it's, it's, it's that, then that helps launch their careers. And that's kind of what we've always been about. Would you say it's easier now as a filmmaker with all these different streaming platforms? Is it more complicated? What's kind of like your overall assessment of the current state as a filmmaker and producer? Well, I think technically it's easier to make a film. I mean, you can make a film on an iPhone. I mean, there's a billion people making films and they call them TikToks now. You just turn it around and it's a TikTok. Um, so the, the, the means of production are, are certainly smaller. But as far as getting the film out there, um, the, yeah, there's all these streaming services. But you know what? They don't pick up indie films. They just don't. They're all making these big eight hour episodic, you know, limited series things. Um, they have no interest in, in acquiring, you know, independent films. And I know, cause I've talked to them. <laughs> and, um, so the distribution is really hasn't changed at all. Uh, it's still, uh, you know, and this is a perfect case with 18 and a half where we're cobbling it together. We've got some great distributor partners, one in London doing the international sales, one in Colorado, you know, who's doing the theatrical release here, but it's also me, calling the theaters and saying, and, and putting them together with the distributor. I'm going to be wearing a sandwich board in front of some of the theaters. Uh, it, you've got to cobble it together. And, and as a filmmaker, if you're not out there promoting it and wearing a literal sandwich board or a figurative one, no one else is going to do it for you. So, uh, you know, and, and then with COVID, no one was going back to theaters. Now, hopefully they are, but you know, um, so we'll, we'll see what happens, but, uh, but I think film festivals are still like really key for any filmmaker because that festivals are a great, great way to actually try out your film and meet an audience and, and travel the world, uh, you know, with your film. We always like to ask all our guests some kind of random rapid fire questions just so it gets known better. Are you ready? Okay. Favorite late night snack? Those pretzels with that are flat and you stick it and you dip them in hummus. Those yeah. are good. All right. All time favorite actor and actress. All-time favorite actor and actress. I'll go, I'll go old school with uh, Sally Kellerman and Elliot Gould. Huh? Late Sally Kellerman, yeah. What film inspired you to really dive into filmmaking? Well, if I told you that, it would be my bank password. So <laughs> I've got to give you something a little different. Um, uh, yeah, I don't... Um, there's a lot of great ones. Um, I, you know, there was one... 
called Failsafe uh, that I saw at a late night screening all alone in college, like in the balcony of the, the our our our, our um, college, and it was almost like a play with Henry Fonda and um, and uh, Larry Hagman, um, which was great. And I was like, oh yeah, that's wow. If these guys can make it with two guys in a room, you know. Like literally that's as simple as that movie is, but it's the stakes of the world. And that's a little bit kind of inspires 18 and a half. Like how do you take a low budget situation with, you know, a handful of actors in two rooms, but have the stakes be the fate of the world. And um, yeah. And now that I'm thinking about a failsafe was a really great example of that. Most awkward moment as a filmmaker. Lens cap. <laughs> that's that's probably yeah it's things like that on 18 and a half i think one of the more and it was funny we were shooting a scene in that september time when we came back for those four days and we were shooting about 10 no like 10 20 seconds into a take and all of a sudden we all realized that someone was wearing a mask in the shot <laughs> and we were, but we had just all become so accustomed to it we we're like oh yeah of course they're wearing a mask it's covid you know uh and we we're like nope cut 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 we gotta reset yeah yeah it's 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 crazy how it's all normalized now and everything i, I recently rewatched the Moneyball. i think it was Moneyball, and i like i think brad pitt's character had a mask on everybody's looking at him and that film was from like the early 2010s and it's, it's just crazy how now it's just it's a normal thing yeah i know i know but you know hey whatever people need to do to protect themselves to come see the movie in theaters mm -hmm. uh please do wear a mask <laughs> take horse pills whatever works for you man you know um uh please come to the theater was there anything you learned in the making of 18 and a half uh that you didn't before like something like either like a method or something you learned about yourself as a filmmaker i mean it was a very trying time right as you alluded to and all, all the yeah, chaos and everything right. was there anything that you learned about yourself and just about the art of filmmaking well i learned how to make sourdough um <laughs> that's for sure uh but i i but also during that six months off we realized that we could do the um the recording of the 18 and a half minute tape which was an all audio with bruce campbell as nixon john crier as as haldeman and, and ted ramey as al haig which originally we had just scheduled it was going to be in post-production we'd fly these guys to a studio and it would be expensive but we would make it work and then we realized about a couple months into the pandemic, we're like, well, hang on a second. Everyone's got Zoom. Everyone's got microphones now. Um, why don't we just do it on Zoom? And we did. And it was great because Ted was in Canada. Bruce was in Oregon. John was in L.A. Uh, you know, and and we were able to do it at a time when actors couldn't act. Directors couldn't direct. No one could. It was no one was on set anywhere. And we realized we could still be creative. We could still, you know, it was kind of like doing a radio drama as part of the movie. Um, we could still keep making a movie, you know, and that was really inspiring. I think for all, all, all of us involved uh, that, you know, yeah, there's a global pandemic and people are dying all around us, but we, we will keep making films and entertainment and creative and being creative uh, as, as long as we can. In addition to being a filmmaker, author, in the past, a, a speechwriter, a connoisseur of American history, I don't even know what this job title would be. I, I guess hoaxer. Can you tell us about this uh, elaborate hoax that, that you were a part of many moons ago? It was a satire. It was a, um, yeah, shenanigans. So my uh, friend, Eitan Gorlin, another Slamdance filmmaker, and I, we, cr we, um, we created a character named Marty Eisenstadt, who during the 2008 presidential campaign, uh, claimed that he was a an advisor to the McCain campaign, 
and um, and and a pundit and and a, a creature of Washington. And and this we were all doing this just as a way to kind of develop this character into a TV pitch. You know, we were pitching this to Comedy Central and MTV and different places. And um, but we kind of uh, built a website for him and and a blog. And and the next thing you know, people started to believe he was real. And he got quoted by the LA Times and Time Magazine, CBS News. And and this, by the way, was when fake news was still cool. Um, I might <laughs> add. Um, and uh, and so we just kind of ran with it. And then by the end of that campaign, we wound up getting a book deal and we're like, book, what's a book? But it was but it coincided with the collapse of the of the economy in 2008. And this was a little side project we were doing while we were trying to get our next features made. And so when presented with the option, do you get paid to write a book or not get paid to not direct a movie or a TV show, uh, you write a book. So we wrote this memoir of Marty Eisenstadt for for our Strauss Giroux, a very prestigious publisher, um, as if Marty still thinks he exists and he, he thinks he's real. And um, and it was this, you know, kind of fun Washington satire that got great reviews, better reviews than any of our films. And um, and, and then we went back to pitching it as a show and actually Ashton Kutcher's company was going to make it and CBS Studios behind it. And then an executive got fired or something and the whole thing went poof, you know, as often happens in TV. Um, but it was a it was a great, you know, creative endeavor. And it was a good also a good lesson that, like, you know, you may think you're working in one medium, but you may find success in a completely different medium. You know, you think it's a short, but it turns into a feature. You think it's a feature and it turns into a book, or maybe it's a play. And, um, and you just have to kind of follow the character or follow the style or unique thing, part of storytelling that you've got going on. And, uh, and that was a great example of it. So I'll go with the flow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. What's the best piece of advice you give for success? Marry well. I love that. Can you elaborate? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's, um, no, I, I will. You, you need to have some sort of partner or partners in life to get you through, uh, not just financially, but emotionally. You know, if you're doing anything creative, you're dealing with 99% rejection 99% of the time, um, you know, whether it's a script or, or a film or a play or whatever it is. Um, so you need some sort of emotional <laughs> backstop to or, or you'll go nuts um and so uh, that's that's really important i'm very lucky i i was able to, to marry someone who's been very supportive of me this time that's great yeah i heard from another filmmaker too like if you can't have peace at home you don't have peace anywhere it's true yeah no you you've gotta you've gotta have a good safe space <laughs> to, <laughs> to make this stuff because if if you're i mean look you're second guessing yourself enough you don't need other people second guessing you all the time mm -hmm. there's gonna be plenty of those people so you need at least someone who believes in you love that well said well dan we really do appreciate the time before we let you go and one line or less why should folks check out 18 and a half um, it's a funny movie and it's a thriller. It's a thriller. It's a comedy. If you laugh, it's funny. If you don't laugh, it's just a thriller. And, um, uh, yeah. And I think it's different. I, I you know, I read one review that said no one's making films like this these days anymore ever did, <laughs> I, you know? Um, and that to me, that's like the, the highest praise, like whether it's good or not is another matter, but it, is it original and different and unique and has great performances and will you be entertained? And it's short, it's 88 minutes, you know, you can't go wrong if it's um, so yeah, please see the movie one way or another or, or buy the sound or buy the soundtrack, the, uh, 
the soundtrack is for sale uh, wherever fine soundtracks are sold uh, digitally um, on iTunes and Spotify. And that just went on sale this week too. Excellent. Looking forward to that. 18 and a half. Be on the lookout in LA and New York, May 27th. And in June, in June, all everywhere. throughout the country, everywhere. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And Dan, where can we find you in 18 and a half online? 18 and a half all spelled that. Well, the 18 is a number one, eight, and then a and D and a half uh, spelled that.com. But then also on all the social medias, either danmervish.com or 18 and a half movie. Yeah, I think the website's 18 and a half movie.com. Um, on Twitter, it's just 18 and a half. Uh, but Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, um, if I can get that working again. Uh, so yeah, we're everywhere. Great, Dan. Thank you so much for your time. Bonus question. Is there anything you wish I asked you in this interview? Um, is there anything you uh, wish you asked me? Oh, uh, well, one one quick thing, because you did sure. mention the Marty Eisenstadt book, mm-hmm. is there is a connection between that and, uh, and 18 and a half. There's a, in the book, we have a chapter about Watergate and Marty Eisenstadt's mother's name is Connie and she's working in the White House. So that is the origins of Willa Fitzgerald's character come from that character in the book. Now, they're not exactly the same, but the name Connie definitely comes from that. So that that's the, the fun connection for those who, who remember that book or still have a copy of it. The Watergate scandal continues to grip the nation as the infamous 18 and a half minute gap in the nation tape. There was a tape. Yeah, this tape was never subpoenaed. Why? Nobody knows it exists. I think the best course of action is that I take the tape. I give you this tape, you splash it all over the cover of the Times, it gets traced back to me in a heartbeat. You and the Pulitzer and I get indicted. No. I think there's a motel nearby, the Silver Sands. We go there, we listen to it, we leave. Off season. Anything is possible, young lady. I don't know how, but they hey, know we're here. Hey, who is they? Could be anyone. Could be the FBI, the CIA, KGB. Could be a post reporter we for all I know. We need to listen to the tape. You know what to do. Who is it, dear? Oh, it's a newlywed couple. We brought her pyre from home, and it was broken. We were wondering if we could borrow yours. 18 and a half minute gap. Maybe no one is supposed to do it. What is happening? Nixon. Oh, no, 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 Let this Watergate thing get out of our grip box. It's a drag. Like this, Al, I push the right two buttons, right? What do you see? Is that the news? Are you, are you listening to Nixon? Soak it up. It'll soon be over. Tomorrow, 30 years from now, I want to be remembered, Bob. You will, sir. You will.